as we mentioned last Sunday, Abraham. Abraham is one of the most interesting persons in probably all of world history, mainly because while undoubtedly known and even beloved throughout most of the world cultures, fundamentally, Abraham, he's famous, but he did nothing, nothing significant, nothing really noteworthy. Abraham didn't invent anything. He left behind no type of scientific advancements. He failed to make a philosophical contribution to the world. Abraham wasn't a revolutionary. He wasn't even an agent of social change. He didn't start out to begin a religion, nor did he discover a new land. For that matter, Abraham didn't write anything down, left behind no type of lasting literary work, and yet Abraham is not only famous, but he's the only person in Scripture defined as being the friend of God. Now what makes this even more amazing, that Abraham, of all the people, was called the friend of God. What blows my mind about that detail is the fact the book of Genesis, this story of Abraham's life, it actually records for us more of his failures than it does his triumphs. How bizarre. You know, the more I've chewed on this thought, in light of the 74 times Abraham surfaces in the New Testament, I've reached the conclusion that fact that Abraham is called the friend of God while scripture records more of his failures than his triumphs, I think that's kind of the whole point of his life. Now, don't misconstrue what I'm saying as being somehow a knock against Father Abraham. On the contrary, I find myself convinced more than ever before that it is for this very reason Abraham is so beloved. He's so relatable. Of all the biblical characters, Abraham is written about more than all others, not just because we can, we can recognize his life and his, and his travels, but I think he's so relatable for what his life has come to represent. Abram, Abraham, goes down as the one guy known, not for what he did, but rather who he knew. Let me break some difficult news to you unless you happen to do something particularly terrible, there is a very strong likelihood that in just a hundred years, no one is going to have any idea who you were. Even as I was writing this out, I was kind of shocked that I could only remember the names of five of my eight great-grandparents, Mildred and Cleo Haskins, Charles and Estelle Shemp, and Junior Quincy Adams, mainly because my son is named after him. And yes, I'll go ahead and just be honest, I had a little help, a little bit, from my mother. The brutal and honest reality is that while you may be a unique snowflake, snowflakes melt incredibly fast. The truth the truth is that despite how awesome you are, and trust me, you're awesome, you, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to make some type of contribution to this world so transcendent that you'll be remembered after those who personally knew you also pass from this life to the next. For example, in a top 10 list of the most famous people to have lived in the 19th century, 
I was only familiar with about 70% of the list. Now, these are the top 10 famous people of last century. I only recognized seven of the 10. Charles Darwin, Louise Pasteur, Thomas Edison, Karl Marx, Abraham Lincoln, Alexander Graham Bell, and Napoleon Barnaparte. Now, what's amazing is that I didn't recognize 30% of the list. Number eight was Michael Faraday. In case you didn't know him, he kind of pioneered electromagnetism. I butchered that. I'm going to move on. Number nine in the list, Gregor Mendel, genetics. Number 10, Marie Curie. It's the theory of radioactivity. I didn't know them. So if I was taking a test, of the 10 most famous people in a 100-year period, I get a 70. Like, that's not very good. I'm going to have a hard time not having to repeat such a class. The chances of any of us in this room making a top 10 list of this century's most famous people is likely nil. And yet, well, I'll admit that is a very depressing way to start a Bible study. This fact is why I find Abraham's story so encouraging. While there was absolutely no earthly metric that explains why or how Abraham, this guy who lived 4,500 years ago, is known, Abraham is not only known, he's famous for one reason. Abraham's life was significant to God. Like Abraham, your life, when it's all said and done, will not be evaluated, nor will it be remembered via the things that you accomplished. Instead, your lasting legacy will be based solely on one thing, your faith in Jesus Christ. As Abraham's life so starkly illustrates, your time on earth will not be remembered for your successes, as great as they might be. Nor will your life be remembered for your failures, as terrible as they might be. But instead, the one thing that will cause your name to be remembered for all of eternity is a faith in Jesus that declares you, as it did Abraham, the friend of God. Honestly, with all of this in mind, may I ask you, just before we get into our text, what's really most important? With these things in mind, is it more important for you to be remembered on, on earth by your friends, even your family, your kids? Which, by the way, is highly unlikely that you're going to be remembered very long. Or is it more important for you to be remembered by the God of the universe? I'm glad that I'm known in heaven, that I have a reputation in heaven, a reputation of being the friend of God because I've placed my faith in Jesus. Genesis chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, we, we read, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Before we continue in our examination of Abram's story, it's important we first reiterate that Abram's life, Abraham's life, 
It illustrates for us several key truths concerning any of our relationships with God. First, Abraham's life illustrates the reality that God's grace initiates first contact. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot that down. The thing we learn from Abraham's life is that it's God's grace, not our works, that initiates first contact. As we noted last Sunday, did Abram, did God appear to Abram because he was a seeker, because he was seeking God? No, as a matter of fact, the last few verses of chapter 11, which we looked at last Sunday, make it plainly clear that Abram was a pagan, a Gentile pagan, living in Ur of the Chaldeans. He had no interest in the true God of the universe. He was an idolater, worshiping false gods. Did God call Abram? Because Abram had somehow demonstrated a worthiness or had done something deserving. On the contrary. Well, in Ur, Abraham was not only a, an idol worshiper, but he made money promoting the worship of idols. Joshua chapter 24 tells us this. Abraham was not a good dude when we're told by Stephen the God of, the, of glory appeared to him. He was lost. He didn't even know how lost he was. And yet God appeared to him. The truth is that there was nothing inherent to Abram or to his character that precipitated God's appearing or even God's calling. The fact is that God chose Abram before Abram chose to follow God. I hope you understand. Jesus didn't die on the cross to save you because you were worthy. As a matter of fact, it was specifically because you weren't worthy that Scripture tells us God sent His only begotten Son. God's amazing grace, and not your worthiness, is the entire reason that you have a relationship with God. Think back to that first contact, that first moment. Were you seeking? Maybe. Were you deserving? Heck no. You were in the world, lost. You had gone out and tried other things. You had worshipped foreign gods. And yet there was a moment in time that despite you, the God of glory spoke into your heart. He moved. He appeared. And it's that moment that changed you forever. But don't forget why God appeared. It wasn't because you were earning it. It's just because God loved you. That he cared about you. How sad that we are so quick to forget this blessed truth. Never forget. If God's first contact was based upon his love for you and not your worthiness, then the entire basis for the continued relationship you have with God is once again still based on what? God's love for you and not the fact you're doing anything to deserve it. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we're told, God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't have to clean up your life to come to the cross. As a matter of fact, it's because you can't clean up your life that you should come to the cross. Secondly, Abraham's life illustrates the reality 
that it's only faith in Jesus that makes us right with God, or, or what we might say establishes our relationship with Him. Understand, God's grace is the means by which our faith in Jesus is made possible. Without the grace of God's first contact, we would never have the opportunity to place our faith in Jesus. Over and over again in the New Testament, the authors make the case that it was directly because Abraham believed God that it was accounted to him for righteousness. According to Galatians chapter 3, Paul even then builds the case that Abraham was right with God, righteous. And he enjoyed a relationship with God for one reason. That Abraham believed, placed his faith in the gospel. In writing to the Ephesian church, Paul reminds the believers, quote, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Abram. Our man Abram. Living as a pagan idolater in a foreign wicked land. Ur of the Chaldeans. We're told while all that was going on, the God of glory appeared to Abram. And not only called him to a land of promise, but God revealed to Abram that it would be necessary for him to leave behind his land, leave behind his family, to go to this land for one reason. God would provide a savior through his lineage. God's grace made first contact. But then Abram's journey was motivated by a fundamental faith in the gospel. He kept his eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher of his faith. Thirdly, Abram's life illustrates the reality that this relationship, initiated by grace, motivated by faith, naturally results in God's will, and you might also say work, being accomplished in our lives. Notice in the verses we just read, these three verses. Verses that record for us the original call and promise that God had made to Abram while he was in Ur, a call that has now been reiterated after a tragic delay in Haran. For more of that, you can refer back to last Sunday's Bible study. But did you notice in these verses how many times God declares to Abram, I will, I will. If chapter 11 was about man's will, chapter 12 is clearly about God's. Six times. God says, I will, in these three verses. I will show you a land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. <laughs> Don't overlook what this tells us. God's work in and through Abram's life would be accomplished how? Would Abraham be involved? No, God is saying, this is what I will do. The work would be accomplished by God alone. But like, these promises were things that God would do apart from Abraham's involvement. I will. The truth is that Abram would play no significant role in the work. This work that we'll see occur in Abram's life it would be supernatural. 
which is important. For in the last few verses of Genesis 11, we're told that Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. Hard to be blessed, hard to grow into a nation, hard for that nation to bless those and curse those, etc., etc. If you don't have an heir, if you don't even have a son, it's clear right from the beginning that in regards to the promises God was giving Abram, nothing that Abram could do could fulfill them. There would be no natural way. I hope you understand the same reality is true today in your life. God has made many promises to you. Scripture records them. The Bible explains them. Incredible promises. Again, in a very large sense, God has promised through Jesus' work on the cross that you will be spared. He'll save you from the coming judgment. God promised when you came to him with wounds. He promised that he would restore parts of your life that had been destroyed by sin. When you had come to Jesus and you had made a mess of it all, there was a promise that it's okay. I'll restore those years that this world has ripped off. Jesus promised that he would provide you life. A life here. A life that would be abundant. That he would fill your heart with joy. It doesn't matter of circumstance. The highs and lows of happiness and sorrow. Through it all, there would be this rock by which I would have a joy, even in tears. What else did God promise? That he would provide love an unconditional love, an unwavering love and peace that would surpass even your understanding. Jesus promised that he would heal your innermost wounds, that they might not happen overnight, but there would be a process by which he would take care of those scars, those areas of your life that are still bleeding and open and vulnerable. He's made all kinds of promises. Ultimately, he's promised to do what? To transform you. When it's all said and done, more into the image and the likeness of his son, Jesus. But realize this. While all of these promises are incredible and great, there is no natural way any of them can be fulfilled. They require God saying, this is what I will do. It's his work. It has to be supernatural. There is nothing that you can do to manifest any of these promises. It can only be accomplished by God and he alone. You know, the Bible in, in, in writing, describing these things that God does, describes them as fruit. Fruit's something that's produced through a natural process by the indwelling spirit of God. These things are not works things that we can knuckle down, that we can see develop, that we can manufacture on our own, they have to be yielded by us abiding in the vine. Never forget this. Both your salvation and then your sanctification are only possible through the direct actions of God apart from your specific involvement. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6, Paul writes that God works all in all. Then in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, he adds that the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. In Ephesians 2, Paul gets even more specific, writing that we are God's workmanship, literally his poema, 
a poem that he is writing, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should just walk in them. The fourth thing we learn is that Abraham's life illustrates the reality that only our only responsibility is to walk with God according to his word. That's your job. You know, so many people struggle, so many Christians, with the particulars of how can I abide in God's will, right? While we want God's will and we want his work to be accomplished in and through our lives, many of us are kind of left wondering, okay, this is great. God's grace initiates first contact, check. Okay, there's nothing I can do. I just have to place my faith in Jesus. That's the only thing that makes me right with God. That it's his work and his work alone that he'll accomplish. I'm along for the ride. I get all that, Zach, but still there has to be something that I'm supposed to be doing. Something I'm supposed to be engaged in. Something I need to ensure I do so that God's promises manifest accordingly. You know, this is where Abram's life serves as an incredible picture for us, a type. Did you notice in these verses, the verses we just read, that there was only one thing God asked of Abram? One thing required of Abram to ensure he remained in the perfect will of God. Once again, we read that God appeared to Abram and gave him a specific, simple command that would enable these I will promises. Look at it again. Look at the text. What does God say? He says, Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. What a fascinating paradigm. Look at it. God told Abram to get out of to. See that? See how, how it's structured? I, I like the way the old King James translates it. Get thee out of unto. The way this verse is structured communicates the idea that Abram was being asked by God in an act of faith, faith in Jesus, to exchange what he presently had for something that God would later give. Do you see that? that that's what God is asking here. Abram, get out. Exchange what you currently have for what I'm going to give you. The message translates this verse as leave for. That's, that's very clear. Notice, God asked Abram to leave behind his present family. Why? So that God could do what? Make him into a great nation. Additionally, God asked Abram to leave behind his father's house and all of the benefits that it would, be, that it would provide. For what? A land that God would show him. Leave for. God commanded Abram to leave behind what he presently had for something better that God wanted to give him. That's the call of faith. You see, Abram had to decide in that moment. First in Ur, then again in Haran. He had to decide what you and I must. We all have to answer this question. Do we want to keep the life that we have and therefore forgo the life that God wants to provide us? Or do we want to forgo the life we have 
so that we might attain the life God wants to provide us. That's the paradigm. Leave for or stay and forgo the two in our passage, God's will, this land that God would show, would or could only be realized if Abraham first did what? Get out. He had to leave. Please notice the unto or for was not to a specific destination. It was to a land, but more importantly, a land what? That God would show him. Like the invitation was rather to engage in a journey that would lead to a particular destination. It's the journey that God is inviting Abraham to engage in. God was inviting Abram to leave his present life in order to begin a new journey with God. What makes Abram's faith evident here is that he chose to walk with God no matter where God might have led as opposed to remaining in the comforts and security of Ur and later Haran. <laughs> but then what's interesting, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but from a bigger examination of Abram's life, you should note, Abram, he never settles down. Like he never stops moving, ever. He never stops the journey. He was a nomad, he was a shepherd, his house was a tent. Abraham owned no real estate other than a small parcel to be buried in. It's an interesting idea. While it's true that Abraham was a, was a journeyer, that there was a land, the story of his life is that he engaged in a journey with God that never ended. That's what he was being invited to, to a land I will show you. And then later on, it was a land I will show you. Later on, a land I will show you. He kept moving and God kept showing incredible things. The reality is that God's will for Abram's life was that he would simply walk with God. That was the call. You know, the same is true for you and I. And this is probably as good a time as any to define what it was that God was promising Abram because there tends to be a lot of confusion about this. Well, in a true and literal sense, God was promising to grow Abram's actual descendants into a mighty nation. A nation that we know as the Hebrew people, the Jews, the children of Israel. And though it's also true in a very specific sense, that the land God would show, this promised land that he would inherit, was literally the land of Israel that we know today. But you need to keep in mind, while there was a specific particular fulfillment to the promise, these promises transcended their practical fulfillment. If you filter these specific promises through the prism of the much larger promise God had made to Abram, that it would be through his family, God would provide a savior. The nation being described transcends the Hebrews and the land, not specifically limited to just Canaan. Let, let me just show you two passages of scripture that kind of illustrate this point. In Galatians 3, verses 6 through 7, Paul wrote this. He says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know 
that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Now, Paul is writing to the Galatians. This is not a Jewish community. The Jews had an identity as being Abraham's descendants, but Paul's writing to Gentiles, making sure they know that the only people who are true sons of Abraham, aside from the literal sense of descending from Abraham, are those who, like Abraham, place their faith in God's Savior. Paul's actually saying these Gentiles are more descendants of Abraham than the Jews who rejected Jesus are. Secondly, in Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10, we're told by faith Abram dwelt in the land of promise, but it was as in a foreign country that Abram dwelt in tents. The heirs with him of the same promise, waiting, notice, for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Everywhere Abraham went, he didn't root down. He was in a tent. He moved. Why? Because he was looking for something that transcended this earth, a city whose foundations, whose builder and maker is God. As we read of this nation, it's important you see its fulfillment in all those who, like Abraham, place their faith in Jesus and choose to walk with God instead of settling in this world. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile alike, you're part of the family of Abraham if you have faith. But additionally, the land we're going to see throughout this story that God promised, it spoke more of heaven than it did a specific piece of real estate off the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And here's my point. Abraham's life teaches us we do have a role. That role's simple. Reject the world and then start a journey. A journey with God. A journey of faith. An exciting journey. A journey that sees God work and God intervene and God supersede that we let go of these things for a life that God is promising. But this is what's important. Abraham's life teaches us that this journey of faith has no destination on this earth. As with Noah, as with Enoch, as with those before Abram. This walk with God, you know when it ends? It, it ends not here, but it ends with us being called home to heaven where we'll abide in the presence of God for all of eternity. That is when our journey of faith ends. Now, the fifth thing that Abraham's life illustrates for us is the reality that God's grace sustains our relationship, this walk, this journey, even when we fail to be obedient. I find that to be so encouraging. We noted it last Sunday because Abram failed to obey God's word, he was told, get out of your country and from your father's house. But what did Abram do? He left Ur, but he took with him his father and subsequently his father's house. He leaves Ur, but because of his disobedience, Abraham's journey with God would experience a delay. It would be placed on hold. Abraham's disobedience, the fact that he was unable to go to the place that God would call him, B 
because he never fully left his father's house. You know, in spite of all of that, the fact that he blows it, he experiences this, this many-year pause, no, nothing written about it, no story of it, no God working, no God blessing, nothing's happening because of his disobedience. What I love about it is that even then, God's promises remain sure. And yet, because his refusal to get out of and from God's promises were delayed, in a sense, God's plan was delayed in Abram's life for one reason. He stopped walking. He quit the journey. He settled in Haran. I hope you know, this morning, if you happen to be in a season of disobedience, maybe you've strayed, you're stuck, you're not walking, you're not moving, you've had a hard time letting go of certain things for the life God wants you to have. It's true. If that's you, his will, his work, it might be delayed. It might even be on hold. You might feel as though this season is barren. It's what the name Haran means. Terah means delay. But if that's you, this is what I want to encourage you with. While it might be on hold, God's promises still remain. God's promises still remain. And by his grace, the same God who made first contact is trying to make a second contact. He's still speaking to you, maybe right now. He's still calling you. He's still pleading for you to leave whatever it is that's causing you to hold on to the former life so that then you can fully realize the new life God has called you for. What's so encouraging about the life of Abram is that when he was finally ready to leave Haran, finally ready to let go, to leave it behind, to begin this walk with God, we see God very willing to lead. A God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Let's look at verse four. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Not a spring chicken. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all of their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the Terebith tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And Abram moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pinched his, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed. Going on still towards the south, there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. We'll kind of pause there, because I want to kind of give you the, the last lesson that we really learn in a macro sense from Abraham's life. Something we'll see continuing to be illustrated is the reality that we must trust God with our circumstances. It's part of the journey of faith. You realize, 
as Abraham makes his way through this, this land of Canaan, this promised land, a land God had placed on his heart way back in Ur, reiterated then again Haran, the, the land he finally gets to. As he's making his way through the land, you notice what he does? It's, it's interesting. He jumps off the page. We're told on two separate occasions, Abram builds an altar to the Lord. Did you notice that from the text? Two times. The first mention of this occurs in Shechem. Now the word Shechem, it means backbone. That's what the word means. Shechem is in the heart of the land. So Abraham has journeyed through the northern part to the heart, the essence, the center, the strength of the land. We read that after the Lord's appearing, when God reiterated his promise that, th that though the Canaanites were in the land, this land had been promised to Abram's descendants. Abram builds this altar to the Lord. You see how this works. He travels to Shechem. There's Canaanites in the land. God appears is like, yo, Abe, the land's yours. Cool. He builds an altar. This is how it rolls. Now, don't miss the deeper significance or the impact of this statement that Canaanites were then in the land. It's not an accident that we're given this line. Well, God had promised the land to Abram to his descendants to come afterward. Following the events of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, it would appear that the family of Canaan, Canaan was Noah's grandson through Ham. Canaan had already migrated and settled in this land. That's why it's known as the land of Canaan. I would imagine that coming to this land that God had promised only to find the Canaanites dwelling there, would have been particularly intimidating. Don't forget. Because of the events of Genesis chapter 9, Canaan and his descendants had been cursed. Some really sketchy things take place. Canaan, not a good dude. God speaking through Noah curses Canaan and his descendants. As we'll see in the coming weeks, these Canaanite cities, they possessed a particular wickedness and perversion. Some sketchy things were happening among this people group. Additionally, they were strong. They were mighty. In Numbers chapter 13, when the children of Israel, following 400 years in Egypt, come back into the land, they send in spies, if you recall the story. Twelve spies to spy out the land. Two are like, let's do it. Let's rock. Let's roll. Ten of them like, absolutely not. Let's go back to Egypt. God judges them. They wander around for 40 years and die as a result. But this is what we're told. This is what we're told. As they're giving this report, the men who had gone into the land, this is what they said. The same land that Abram's currently in, the middle of, the backbone of. They read, they say, we're not able to go up against this people for they are stronger than we. Now, they're a nation of about two, three million people. They write, the land which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw are men of great stature. We saw giants, Nephilim, same word we find in Genesis 6. And this is how they describe, and think you, you think that they, like, that's some weird thing that doesn't mean tall people, giants, like literally giants. They say, we, these Jewish slaves, we were like grasshoppers 
in our own sight. We were little and they're big. There are weird things happening here. We'll talk about later. But can you imagine as Abraham, he finally gets to the land. He makes his way into it. He pitches his tent there in Shechem and he sees Canaanites, giants, mighty men. He had to be thinking as a shepherd, how am I going to possess a land currently being occupied by such a wicked group of people? He's a nomadic shepherd. At the time, he possesses a small family, modest resources. He has no army, no clang, no ability to command or to conquer. And yet, because he's been faithful to go into the heart of the land anyway, in this moment of doubt and understandable uncertainty, what happens? The Lord appears to him and reiterates his promises. And it's for this reason that Abram builds an altar and he makes an offering to God. Now, contrast this very quickly, with the second time Abram builds an altar. We read Abram travels from Shechem, going south, to Bethel, where he builds an altar and begins calling on the name of the Lord. And it appears from the text his motivation is that there was a severe famine gripping the land. How interesting that after finally making it to the land that God had led him to, Abram now encounters a severe famine. I hope you know, walking with God, it doesn't guarantee life is easier. As a matter of fact, it's going to make life harder. It doesn't mean you're going to be immune from trials or just struggles that life throws your way. Nor is it true that trials or struggles are somehow proof or evidence that you're outside the will of God. Is Abraham outside the will of God? No, he's right where God had called him and led him to be. And yet there was a famine. Abraham hadn't done anything wrong. He's facing a severe famine, and he's right in the midst of God's will. Understand, tests of faith are not designed for God to evaluate how dedicated you are. You'll hear pastors say that. God is wanting to just see what you're made of. He's trying to make sure that you've got the mustard to do it. Now, he's all-knowing. He already knows you're an idiot. He already knows you're unable. He already knows you're going to fall short. He, he knows you, and he still saved you. That's a mystery, right? He knows you. So a test of faith is not for God to, like, be able to evaluate where exactly you are. He already knows that. Instead, these, these tests are for God to reveal to you how far you still need to go. James Chapter 1, he says, My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. When, not if, but when. They're going to happen. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What's interesting about these two occasions is the difference in purpose behind the altar itself. In much the same way as Noah, in Shechem, it would appear this act of, of erecting an altar, making an offering before the Lord, it was a response, wasn't it? He's in the land, there's Canaanites, he's freaking out, God appears and speaks, and he's like, all right. And he builds this altar and he worships the Lord. It was a response to God's goodness and God's grace. These Canaanites might have shaken his confidence in God's promise, but in God's grace, he appears, calms his fears, 
the altar, the offering, our response to his increased faith, his trust in God's promises. However, in Bethel, you see the same dynamic? No. Same kind of daunting circumstances, Canaanites, famine. But we see something in Bethel totally different. Because there was a famine in the land, what does Abraham do? Any, any mention of God speaking, God appearing, any of that? No. We're told he builds an altar, makes an offering to the Lord, in much the same way as a pagan. The altar, it was not a response to God's goodness. The altar was not motivated by his faith. Instead, this altar and Bethel represented Abram's attempt to get something from God. The offering was an appeal for God's intervention. Understand this. Altars and offerings are only accepted by God as a response to his favor and are never, ever, ever a successful way to curry his favor or motivate his intervention. God's grace is sufficient. You have all you need in Christ Jesus. As the Lord's appearing in Shechem illustrated, while facing this famine and Bethel, Abraham, he didn't need to erect an altar, did he? To speak with God. In Shechem, does he make an altar for God to speak? No, God speaks, calms his spirit, he builds an altar. In Bethel, he doesn't have to build an altar for God to speak, for God to work, for God to calm. And yet he does this anyway. God not only doesn't honor it, he doesn't recognize it, he doesn't speak at all, which you'll find over and over and over again in the story, these times when Abraham builds altars and calls on the name of the Lord. God doesn't answer. He, but when he builds an altar following God speaking, it's honoring. God doesn't answer, doesn't speak. He allows the, the famine to continue and to grow in its severity. Keep in mind, the famine, as with the Canaanites, was a test of Abram's ability to trust God. In Shechem, God spoke to Abram. His faith was young. But now that he's facing this famine in Bethel, the question begs. Would Abram trust that where God guides, God provides? Would, would Abram place his confidence in God's ability to work all things for the good to those who love God and are called according to his promises? Would his faith remain sure? His trust in God's word and promises not waver? Yes, it's true. God had called him to the land. But now that there's this famine gripping the land, making life difficult. Abraham, he begins to wonder, should I begin to wander? I know I'm in the land, but man, this is not what I signed up for. Should I go south for greener pastures, even if that requires I leave the land God's led me to? Sadly, Abraham doesn't hear from the Lord, builds this altar, calls on the name of the Lord, doesn't hear anything. And what does he do? He goes south to the land of Egypt. And as we're going to see next Sunday, not a single thing good happens as a result. It's totally disastrous. Abraham's life, wrapping it up here. It illustrates the reality that while God's grace initiates first contact, it is only by your faith in Jesus that you're made right with God and afforded a relationship with him. I hope you know that. And it's this relationship, it's amazing, that naturally manifests 
produces God's will and God's work being accomplished in your life. What do I do, Zach? Walk with God. And where he leads, follow. Yes, while God's grace sustains this relationship, even when you fail to be obedient, never forget your fundamental responsibility is to walk and to trust his word, even when the circumstances might cause that faith to waver. (laughs) And when your faith wavers, and it will, it's okay to call on the name of the Lord. But the lesson that Abraham's life clearly illustrates is that God takes no delight when we revert to pagan attempts to garner God's favor. You already have it. He's already given it. You have all the blessings in the heavenly places already, and you did nothing for it. And you continue to do nothing for it. God. God was silent here. Not because God didn't love Abram, but God was silent. So Abraham would have to make a decision. Will I trust the promises he's already made? And this morning, I can't think of a better place to end a study with than with that exhortation. God has made you promises. Trials are coming. Sometimes you cry out to the Lord. and He answers, but sometimes he's quiet. Not because he doesn't love you, but because He's wanting you to make a decision. Do I really trust his promises? Do I hold to his promises? Is my faith really in Jesus? And if it is, then you will let go of, you will leave behind to lay hold of a life that God has for you. So Father, with that word.